Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Frederick Barbarossa, the Holy Roman Emperor, one of the great medieval leaders who more or less single-handedly held his realm together through just the most ridiculous amount of political adversity. The Holy Roman Empire lasted a thousand years, but there is a good chance that it would not have got that far without Barbarossa, who spent most of his career doing everything he could to keep a splintered and fractured realm together. He was beset by rebellious city-states, ambitious and mutinous vassals, powerful dukes, even a belligerent pope or two. And Frederick, he still somehow managed to not just keep the Holy Roman Empire together, but also strengthen and consolidate his centralised power as emperor. The position of emperor, the position of king of Germany, had been under siege uh, over the over the beginning of the, uh, of the 12th century and before that. So he did a good job, very, very good job to keep his realm together. And he did this with a very careful combination of, uh, of diplomacy and military might. He spent a lot of time racing back and forth between various parts of his realm, Italy, Germany, uh, as he tried to keep all these all these plates spinning so his realm didn't just fall apart. Um, but, you know, while he did use diplomacy where necessary, he also did a, a lot of fighting. He fought with his feudal vassals. He fought with the church. He fought with Italian city-states. He fought with everyone who, who, wanted a, wanted, who wanted a scrap, really, and he emerged. Well, look, I'm not going to say a whole lot better than where he started, to be honest, but he still had an intact empire, which I think would not have been the case with, uh, with many lesser leaders here. Frederick Barbarossa also famous for some of his uh, international affairs, not just his domestic concerns, but uh, famous having gone on crusade twice. He didn't just go on one crusade, he went on on two, and I do have to say neither time worked out too well for him. I mean, the disastrous Second Crusade, uh, he went over there as a vassal of the King of Germany, didn't end up with much to show for it personally. The Crusaders, the Christians didn't end up with much to show for it at all. The Second Crusade was a disaster for everyone involved. Uh, on the on the Christian side of things, but uh, as for the Third Crusade, uh, decades later, Frederick once again uh, headed off. This time, leading the German forces en route, but uh, never actually made it to the Levant. And uh, well, you might wonder why, but you're going to have to hold your horses. That is that is a story that will come to in due time. It's a very good one as well. Uh, we'll get across that and so much more as well today as we talk about the story of Frederick Barbarossa. Another long one, another long episode today, so strap yourselves in. Let's get stuck in. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. Going all the way back to the year 1122 to a town called Hagenau. Back then, this was part of the Kingdom of Germany, uh, which was part of the Holy Roman Empire, although these days Hagenau is actually found in France. It's, it's just on the other side of the German border. Anyway, in, in December 1122, young Frederick was born. He was born as the son of Frederick II, the Duke of Swabia, and uh, his wife, Judith of Bavaria. Now, he's not Frederick Barbarossa just yet, and there's a very good reason for this. Barbarossa is Italian for red beard. And look, you know, as impressive as it would have been if he'd been born with a great big bushy beard, uh, that wasn't the case, and his nickname would come along later. And you might be wondering, hang on, why? I mean, this, is, this bloke's one of the most famous German kings in history. Why... 
Does he have an Italian nickname? Well, we'll get across that as well. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Let's focus instead on his early years. Now, often when we talk about the upbringing of a young noble, we're always talking about a first-rate education, reading, writing, language, history, law, and all that sort of stuff. Not so with old mate Frederick. Let me tell you, not only was he mostly illiterate for his entire life, he never really got a grasp on Latin, the lingua franca of the day, and this set him apart from other monarchs uh, of his time, uh, and he was actually derided by many other, you know, he was other monarchs, other leaders, even his own dukes and vassals thought a lot less of him because he had a very limited facility with with Latin and never really learnt to read or write all that well. But uh, look, while he was teased and bagged for his lack of book learning, let me tell you this: he made it up for it in other ways because Barbarossa was quite a specimen. Uh, physically speaking, he was strong, he was tough, he was handsome to look at, and he was an exceptionally skilled warrior, hunter, and rider. He spent much of his life in the saddle, very at home around horses. Um, and he also had this uh, inequality that's absolutely invaluable to effective leaders. He had charisma and personal magnetism. The bloke just had that that X factor, whatever it is, that drew people to him. Anyway, as he's growing up, son of a powerful duke, nephew of the king of Germany, Conrad III, he's cutting about, bit of hunting, bit of riding, attending royal councils with his uncle when he's needed, that sort of thing. His uncle was very, very fond of him. Uh, The two got on very well indeed. But we'll jump forward here to 1147 to get things underway with this story, because uh, in 1147, this was when Frederick headed off on the Second Crusade. Pope Eugene III announced a crusade in 1146 after the fall of Edessa, a crusader state that was established during the First Crusade. And uh, and Frederick Frederick's uncle, King Conrad, he vowed he'd go along to fight. Now, Conrad was actually a very important, very powerful figure at this point in the history of the Holy Roman Empire, even just as the King of Germany. And the reason for that was there wasn't a Holy Roman Emperor when the Second Crusade was called. The the last Holy Roman Emperor had died in 1137, Lothair III, and he hadn't been replaced. And a lot of this was to do with that infighting, that that this this fractious, mutinous unrest that, that had gripped the entire realm with, with kings and princes and dukes and bishops all fighting and squabbling over their particular piece of the pie, all of them involved in various feudal uh, conflicts and dynastic feuds and all sorts of stuff that just prevented there from being someone in any position to rule the entire realm. The, the, the secular leaders, the kings and princes, were fighting with the, the religious leaders, the bishops and archbishops, and generally speaking, no one's getting on. But the realm and Christendom more broadly gets together when Pope Eugene calls this crusade and Frederick is one of the blokes who goes along. King Conrad, very keen to have his favourite nephew come with him. Um, His dad, as it turns out, was not so keen on him going. Duke Frederick II is very sick. He wants his son and heir to remain behind and look after his family. But... uh, Frederick goes, nope, I'm going along whether you like it or not, Dad. And uh, Frederick II's response to that was to just die. So by the time he goes off on the crusade in 1147, Frederick is now Frederick III of Swabia. He's now a duke. Uh, And a few weeks after his old man uh, ultimately did die, he heads off on the crusade with his uncle, the king. Now, the Second Crusade, as I've already mentioned, was more or less a total failure for the Christians. In the Levant, it achieved absolutely nothing. Uh, The Muslim forces there turfed out the Christian invaders very, very easily and very quickly indeed. Um, Interestingly, the greatest success that the Crusaders had during the Second Crusade wasn't in the Levant, where they were obviously heading off to fight. No, it was actually in 
Portugal, of all places, uh, where some crusaders stopped off on their way from England to the Levant and captured Muslim-held Lisbon. So the greatest victory that the crusaders had was miles away from their intended target. But as for Frederick's uh, personal experience of the Second Crusade, let me tell you this. He did not have a good time at all. He had, bloody, he had a bloody terrible time. He set off with his uncle, as I mentioned, marched through the, through the Byzantine Empire into Anatolia. And there, the German army came under constant attack from Seljuk Turks. They inflicted heavy losses on Conrad's troops. And Conrad ended up just giving up on the march overland, instead returned to Constantinople and took ships to the Levant instead landing in Acre. And after landing there, Frederick accompanied Conrad to Jerusalem and then took part in the disastrous defeat at the ill-fated Siege of Damascus in mid-1148 that effectively ended the Second Crusade. This siege dragged on and on for five whole days. Yeah, days. Not even a week. It was not a long one at all. The Crusaders stuffed it all up beyond belief. They took heavy losses in each fight with the troops defending the city, and the whole thing fell apart. And when I say the whole thing, I don't just mean the siege. I mean the entire Second Crusade. After one failed siege, the Crusaders gave up. There was so much infighting and disagreements and all sort of factional squabbling between the Crusaders that the whole thing was over before it had hardly begun. So... Frederick returned home with Conrad and the troops that remained, an embarrassing defeat under his belt, and arrived back in Swabia in 1149. Not a great start to his career as a crusader, but then, you know, look, there's still there's still the third crusade to go yet. Maybe that'll go better. No, no it, it, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything. It, it did not go better for him. Anyway, back at home, Frederick gets on with the business of ruling his duchy for the next couple of years until 1152, right, when his uncle Conrad the, Conrad III died. But check this out. On his deathbed, Conrad III recommended against the election of his own son, also confusingly named Frederick, which doesn't make it easy to explain what happened here. Um, He instructs the princely electors uh, within the Kingdom of Germany. Germany was an elective monarchy at this point. He instructs them to choose his nephew, Frederick, not his son, Frederick, as the next king of Germany. These were his dying words. He said them on his deathbed in in front of of, of the bloke who would go on to become Frederick Barbarossa um, and one other person and no one else. So there were two witnesses to this. Uh, one of them was the bloke who, you know, now was going around saying, oh, yeah, no, he definitely, he picked me for the next king. Absolutely. Didn't he, mate? Looking over at the Prince Bishop of Bamberg, who was like, uh, yes, he did for sure. Look, I don't know. Maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't. We don't know. But whatever the case, Frederick, or the bloke who would go on to become Frederick Barbarossa, not the son of Conrad, the other Frederick, our Frederick, he is duly elected as the king of Germany. Well, I say King of Germany, that's not what he was called, believe it or not. The title back then was actually officially known as the King of the, can you guess, Romans, not the King of Germany. The names they used were ridiculous. I mean, think that the Holy Roman Empire, right, was for most of its existence a German empire, but it called itself Roman. I mean, it was one of many different empires that styled itself as the true successor to the ancient Roman Empire and all of their nomenclature reflected that right down to calling the king of Germany the king of the Romans. 
Um, also, like, actually important to note here that he is not the Holy Roman Emperor. Even after having been crowned king here, the King of the Romans is a lower rank than Emperor. Most of the time, the King of the Romans was also the Holy Roman Emperor. If you were King of Germany, good chance you were going to be the Holy Roman em- Emperor at this point uh, in the Holy Roman Empire's history. But also at this exact time when he was crowned, there was no Holy Roman Emperor. Um, although, I'll tell you what, Frederick, he's about to change that. Um, also, I suppose I should mention as well for the real history nerds out there, the Holy Roman Emperor wasn't called the Holy Roman Emperor at this stage in history either. So, look, it doesn't really matter. It's all enormously confusing. Here's what really matters about the position that we're talking about here, the King of the Romans. King of Romans, King of Germany, whatever you want to call it. This position, uh, newly occupied by King Frederick, was a shadow of its former self. Over the last few decades... Uh, the King of the Romans had become less and less powerful thanks to conflict with the church, dynastic feuds, internal infighting, ambitious dukes, all sorts of stuff. This this had culminated to erode the power of the king to the point that, uh, look, the position wasn't quite a figurehead, but it wasn't far off it. German dukes had become very powerful throughout the 12th century, and so King Frederick I, as he is now, he has his work cut out for him as he inherits a political office that, as I say, is a shadow of its former self, plagued with division and unrest between all of its subjects. And if you want an idea of just how badly divided the empire was at this point, and specifically the Kingdom of Germany, have a look online at just how ridiculous maps of the Holy Roman Empire were at this point. If you Google Holy Roman Empire map 1150, you will see, I mean, you'll see just what I mean. It looks like someone spewed up a bag of Skittles. There are that many tiny different bits of colour. Frederick ruled over more than 1,600 individual states, some of them so small you won't even find them on a map, and most of them with leaders who didn't think much of the office of the king. But to his credit, Frederick rose to the occasion, and he worked very hard to unify his German subjects, consolidate the power of the kingdom within the framework of the Holy Roman Empire, um, which at this point is massive, by the way. It stretched all the way from the low countries in the north down to the south, halfway along the Italian peninsula. It went from halfway across modern-day France into what is today the Czech Republic and Poland. Absolutely massive, massive empire. And if the Germans wanted to assert their power and position within this empire, they needed to put aside their squabbles and they needed to work together And that's just what Frederick worked on achieving. And he did a very good job too. He brought a lot of German nobles on side. But, of course, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. He also put a fair few noses out of joint as well as he went around attempting to unify his realm. And he made some powerful enemies as he looked to consolidate his power. One such enemy was Henry the Lion, the Duke of Saxony, who would be a thorn in Frederick's side for a long time to come. And we'll uh, we'll get across that when his name crops up once again. Anyway... Outside of his own immediate realm, uh, Frederick also had, had had larger ambitions. I mentioned before there is no Holy Roman Empire emperor at this point, right? The Holy Roman Emperor is beset with division and infighting. Frederick thinks that he is the one to fix it. He decides that once he's finished uniting his own kingdom, he is going to have a crack at this emperor title for himself as well. And this means, most important of all, in order to become the Holy Roman Emperor, this means he has to get in good with the Pope. As, as the Pope is the one who would whack the crown on his head were he able to actually get to that point. 
So Frederick started to make overtures to the Pope as well, trying to get on his good side by doing things like promising to defend him from the hostile kingdom of Sicily to the south. And it was this promise that was what led Frederick to undertake his first campaign into Italy, into the Italian peninsula, something that he obviously got a bit of a taste for because he did it no less than six times throughout his entire career as he struggled against rebellious cities, the kingdom of Sicily, and also eventually in, in, in the fullness of time, the Pope as well. Um, and it was this fact, it was the fact that he spent so much of his career in Italy that it resulted in him getting his nickname, Barbarossa. He's, he was known for his magnificent red beard, um, and it was for some reason a nickname that stuck in Italian, uh, in the language of, broadly speaking, his enemies, rather than his native German, which would have been Rotbart. And look, I don't know, perhaps he should be grateful for that. I, I, I certainly would rather be known to history as Barbarossa than... Rotbart, I think. Yeah, anyway. So, first Italian campaign began in 1154. This was, uh, this was with the stated objective to go after the Kingdom of Sicily, who were, if you'll believe it, led by Normans, not Sicilians. King Roger I of Sicily was a Norman noble who conquered Sicily in the 1060s, just like William the Conqueror was a Norman who conquered England in the 1060s. Um, and his descendant, also called William, which is obviously just making everything more confusing, King William I of Sicily, not England. Uh, King William I of Sicily had fallen afoul of the Pope. So Frederick decided to travel south into the Italian peninsula and give William a sharp lesson or two. Uh, and while he was doing this, he would also score points with Pope Adrian IV and, uh, you know, hopefully begin to make a, a run at the imperial crown. On his way, however, Frederick took some time to subjugate some Italian cities and regions. Uh, he conquered Milan, he raised Tortona to the ground, and he conquered the city of Pavia, where he was crowned as King of Italy as well after these conquests, another crown for his collection. But he was about to get one more, a much bigger and much fancier one too, and he did it without even having to fight the, uh, the Sicilians. By mid-1155, he'd arrived in Rome, where Adrian was under attack from disgruntled reformists. Frederick marched in, crushed those who were rebelling against the Pope's authority, hanged the movement's leader, and this proved to be a good move, as Pope Adrian just then and there crowned him Holy Roman Emperor on the 11th of June, 1155, the first in almost two decades, just like that job done. The Holy Roman Empire once again has an emperor, and at a point where the realm is, is very close to its absolute apex in terms of territory. So you would think a time for celebration and festivities, brand new emperor across a vast realm. But no, instead, the people of Rome weren't happy with this outcome at all, and they took to the streets. This bloke had marched into the city, he'd killed a bunch of rebels, he'd hanged their leader, and now, now he thinks he's the Holy Roman Emperor? All the supporters of the rebels and the reformists within Rome, they began to riot in the streets after he was proclaimed emperor. And so Frederick spent most of his coronation day once again crushing rebels with his troops in Rome. Probably not how he wanted to celebrate his triumph, but actually, no, then again, he didn't mind a scrap, old mate Frederick. So maybe maybe he was, you know, perfectly fine with this, this outcome. Who knows? Anyway, he had very quickly fulfilled his ambition to become Holy Roman Emperor, much much faster than he, uh, he, he anticipated he would. And now he holds the kingdoms of Germany and Italy in addition to his role as Emperor. 
Now, he's still got the Sicilians to deal with down south, of course. He promised the Pope he was going to take care of them, and that's the next thing on his agenda. He marches his troops out of the city of Rome and then makes a U-turn and heads straight back up to Germany. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One, it is stinking hot. It is so hot in Italy that summer that it is really just not the sort of conditions that you want to be marching a bunch of troops overland in order to then go and fight a bunch of battles. They wouldn't have made it in any sort of condition to actually put up a fight against the Sicilians. And secondly... There are a lot of domestic troubles and problems brewing away in Germany. So he has to turn around. He has to whiz back up north to deal with these issues that are emerging back at home, more infighting, more squabbling nobles, more nonsense. But Frederick, after arriving back in Germany, he put on a diplomatic masterclass. He moved people about, redistributed their titles, mollified his powerful vassals, and generally went around just squashing as much beef as he could. And this, once again, brought a lot of people on side. There were people who were very happy to pick up new land or move away from neighbours that they had feuds with or, generally speaking, were treated pretty well by this uh, by Frederick's diplomatising here. But there were a few that weren't so happy. And one of them, of course, was Henry the Lion, the powerful Duke of Saxony, who Frederick attempted to bring on side with the gift of another duchy. In order to try to bring Henry the Lion into line here, he gave him the, the duchy of Bavaria as well. And as a result of this, now as the Duke of Bavaria and Saxony, Henry the Lion had enough power and wealth and military might to pose a very real threat to Frederick, even as king, even as emperor. And Frederick realised that he would have to tread very lightly with Henry the Lion as one of his most, if not his most powerful vassal, if he wanted to make sure that there wasn't going to be an uprising back at home with this bloke, you know, trying to usurp or overthrow his king and emperor. But even with Frederick taking care of, of all of these internal issues, putting out all these fires up in his native Germany, more fires are now emerging and springing up down on the Italian peninsula. Trouble is brewing once again the moment he turned his back, it started, of course. Frederick's retreat to Germany had emboldened the Norman Sicilians, who had managed to score a number of, of concessions from Pope Adrian, who realised now he couldn't really contest them without Frederick's help. Adrian conceded territory from the Holy Roman Empire in order to, uh, to placate these Sicilians. And what's worse, he did this, he handed this territory away in a way that made it seem like he, Adrian, not Frederick, had the final say over territorial matters within the Holy Roman Empire. He made it seem like Frederick was a vassal of the papacy. And this absolutely incensed Frederick. There have been decades of fighting between secular and religious leaders within the Holy Roman Empire, and this is really still a sore point for many people within the Holy Roman Empire at this point. Frederick is that pissed off, right? that he decides to ride south once again. He felt so completely undermined by the bloke that he'd ridden south to protect years previously that he decides to get in his horse, cross the Alps, once again stamp his authority on rebellious northern Italy, give the Sicilians a seeing to, as he'd promised to. He's a man of his word many years ago. He promised to give them a seeing to. He was going to do that. And also now take up his issue with Pope Adrian III. Now, Adrian, I have to say, very cleverly avoided conflict with Frederick. Frederick actually was never able to bring up these issues successfully with Adrian. Adrian very deftly sidestepped any any sort of uh, disagreement with Frederick by dying 
1159. He did it before Frederick reached Rome. Very, very clever way to avoid the wrath of the Holy Roman Emperor, you would have thought. Um, And after this very cunning ruse from Alexander, things only got more complicated when, in his wake, two popes were elected, Pope Alexander III and anti-Pope Victor IV. And look, we've talked about the fact this whole period was filled with political and religious strife and unrest and disharmony and chaos. And, And that's what ultimately meant that we end up with situations like this, with two feuding popes. And I'm not going to go into all the details as to exactly what happened and why and how and when, because there are just so many of those details. But the long and the short of it is this. Frederick now has to decide which pope he's going to support. And after summoning Alexander de Pavia to meet with him as the emperor, Alexander actually actually refused Frederick's summons. And this resulted in Frederick supporting Victor instead of Alexander. And Alexander responded to this by excommunicating them both. And just in case you thought the twists and turns were finished, in order to shore up support against Frederick, Alexander allied himself with William I of Sicily, the old foe of both Frederick and the papacy. This is the same bloke that Frederick had ridden south to defend the papacy from just a couple of years ago, and now the Pope's cozying up with him. How the tables have turned. And on top of this, Frederick is now having to put down uprisings throughout northern Italy. There are people who just aren't willing to accept his rule as either the King of Italy or the Holy Roman Emperor for that, for, for, for that matter. So he raised Milan, he forced other rebellious cities to capitulate, and then had to deal with a bunch of disgruntled German dukes like Henry the Lion, who were worried now that Frederick was becoming too successful and too powerful. So in 1162, he once again had to return to Germany because of all this unrest and conflict there. I mean, it's just bloody whack-a-mole with this bloke. He turns away for one second or, I mean, four years, I guess, still. But his realm is once again in upheaval and he has to deal with it again. It never bloody stopped with this bloke. Let me tell you, poor old Frederick, he's putting out fires left, right and centre. And, I mean, also starting them, I suppose, when he raised cities like Milan, to be fair. Anyway... He's back down in Italy once again the next year in 1163 to fight the Sicilians, but a combination of their power and his internal enemies within his empire uh, that were threatening to defect to the Sicilians, this caused him to think better of taking the fight to the Sicilians properly and once again turn around, head back to Germany. And this time, instead of fighting, he instead busied himself with organising a massive festival, a festival to celebrate the canonisation of Charlemagne which is held in Aachen, and it was overseen by anti-Pope Victor's successor, anti-Pope Paschal III, who got on very well with Frederick. But before long, he's back down in Italy. This is the fourth time now, because Pope Alexander is now negotiating an alliance not with William of Sicily, but instead, Manuel I of the Byzantine Empire. The Pope is now looking east for allies against Frederick as the Holy Roman Emperor, and this is very, very bad news for him. So, he marches south once again, never stops, and he does this without the full support of his dukes, which, well, I mean, probably doesn't come as a huge huge surprise to you, really. But most notably, Henry the Lion, one of, again, his most powerful vassals, doesn't come with him to Italy in order to try to keep the realm and the empire together. And this is not ideal, as it means that Frederick isn't fighting at his full strength at a time when the papacy is cozying up to Constantinople. But I have to say, even the absence of Henry the Lion, that doesn't stop. That doesn't stop Frederick. It doesn't get in his way at all. This expedition goes very well for Frederick. 
He besieged cities, he fought the Pope and his allies in Rome, and then, after defeating Alexander's forces, had another imperial coronation, just to drive the point home, but this time with his wife Beatrice, held by anti-Pope Paschal. So he has really put on a show, not just on the battlefield, but also a very symbolic display of his political power as well here. A terrific result, you'd think. A stunning series of victories both on and off the battlefield. But then... I mean, it doesn't, it really doesn't stop. A new threat emerged, and this is one that he couldn't fight against at all. An epidemic swept through his troops. It might have been the plague, might have been malaria. We don't know what it is, but whatever it was, it stopped Frederick in his tracks. With his army on the verge of being totally wiped out by by illness, Frederick once again had to turn tail and speed back to Germany, and once again had to focus on affairs closer to home to keep his realm together. But despite having to cut his Italian trip short, you know, even in the wake of some enormous successes down south, the time that he spent back in Germany as he recouped and uh, and rebuilt his strength and his army, it wasn't wasted at all. Between 1168 and 1174, Frederick really put in some hard yakka to pacify his squabbling vassals, expand his influence over the eastern reaches of his empire, and he also did some international diplomacy as well further west. He reached out to England and France in an attempt to improve relations there. So he was quite the diplomat. He did love to swing a sword about as well, but he really did have a knack for diplomacy, our Frederick, wasn't when he wasn't, you know, busy cracking skulls down in Italy. And after these six years uh, within, uh, within that he spent in Germany, things were looking a little more peaceful and stable there. However, of course, as you've already as I'm sure you've already guessed, not so good on the Italian peninsula. And once again, he has to head south and sort things out. Mutinous anti-German sentiment had bubbled up in the Holy Roman Empire's Italian possessions. And so Frederick jumps on his horse and rides over the Alps again to sort it all out. And once again, Henry the Lion refuses to come as his most powerful vassal as the bloke who was in a position to help him the most He didn't come along, and this time it does make a difference. It does have a huge effect on the campaign because these northern Italian cities, they were beginning to break free of feudalism. They were beginning to forge themselves more modern economies through trade and commerce. And as a result, they had become extremely wealthy over the last six years. And using this wealth and a network of alliances against Frederick and his rule, Regions across Italy united in what was known as the Lombard League with the backing of the Byzantines, and they took the fight to Frederick when he arrived to bring his Italian vassals into line, and Frederick loses badly. He suffers a string of defeats in 1175-1176 uh, to the point that he essentially has to give in. He cannot keep fighting, and it is not, look, it's not quite a fully-fledged surrender. These Italian cities, the Lombard League, don't gain their independence or anything like that. But in the peace negotiations with the Lombard League and Pope Alexander, Frederick is forced to make a lot of very significant concessions in order to stop the fighting. But look, Frederick is a bloke who knows when to hold him and he knows when to fold him. And he recognises that this fight cannot go on. It is not helping the strength of his realm. And so he makes these concessions. He recognises Alexander as the Pope rather than the anti-Pope Paschal, who had got on really well with. He also concedes the supremacy of the papacy over the papal states and renounced any right that he had once claimed to appoint bishops. And later on, he would also accept that these economically progressive Italian towns had the right to elect their own leaders, again, within the the architecture of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, in order to 
pacify their rebellious tendencies in order to sort of stem some of the anti-German sentiment that was coming out of northern Italy at the time. So it was a compromise. It was a compromise that maintained Frederick's authority as Holy Roman Emperor, although with a lot less power than before and certainly less than he had been hoping to achieve when campaigning in Italy. So not too bad, you might think. Could be worse. He could have just had his pants pulled down completely, lost all of his Italian possessions, had the Pope denounce him and excommunicate him again. Wasn't such a, wasn't such a terrible result for him after all. But just you wait until you hear what was waiting for him back home in Germany as he returned this time. For more or less his entire career as king and then as emperor, Frederick had had to deal with these bastard bloody vassals of his, these German dukes who just would not accept his authority, constantly causing trouble, waging civil war amongst themselves, undermining his power while also seeking to expand their own. And no one was more emblematic of this ducal resistance to Frederick's reign than Henry the Lion. Henry has become extremely powerful. He's got multiple duchies, plenty of wealth, a sizable ducal military, and all he's been doing while Frederick has been down in Italy is causing trouble, is just stirring up problems for his his liege lord to have to deal with, trying to destabilise Frederick as a leader. And after this latest disastrous campaign in Italy, Frederick is absolutely spewing at the bloke. He's so cross that Henry firstly didn't come and aid him as that could have made all the difference, but secondly had spent all this time just causing trouble for him back at home. Henry Henry had been thumbing his nose at Frederick for far too long, cheeky bastard, not behaving like a dutiful vassal or to supporting his liege. And Frederick's had a gutful. Enough as enough, he says, he decides to bring the hammer down on Henry the Lion once and for all. And so in 1180, Frederick puts Henry on trial in absentia, strips him of his titles, and sends him into exile in England. A terrible punishment, to be sure. But for all of Henry's perfidy and disloyalty, I mean, perhaps the punishment did fit the crime after all. Anyway, you might think that removing his most troublesome vassal would go some way in removing the problems that Frederick had faced as Holy Roman Emperor. After all, Henry had been one of the main instigators of all of these issues, these all these domestic problems that, he, that, uh, that Frederick had had. And maybe now his attempts to unify not just his German kingdom, but his empire as a whole could move forward more briskly. Or, you know, having listened to this for the past 30 or 40 minutes, you might have realised that, no, that is not going to be the case at all. It has not gone well for Frederick over the last 20-something years as emperor, and that's not going to change because one bloke's been taken out of the picture. And that is exactly it. It does not get any easier with one one single duke, as powerful as he was, being taken out of the picture. We sort of have this view of medieval kings and, as, and emperors as, as being largely untouchable, right? Like they were so powerful, they had such authority over their realm and their vassals that a, a king being overthrown or meaningfully challenged was, was a huge event, but that's not quite the case, particularly in the Holy Roman Empire. In, in a feudal structure like the Holy Roman Empire, it wasn't unusual for vassals, for dukes and, and, and princes and, and archbishops to have as much or even more power than their lieges, because while the king or the emperor was off trying to keep his realm together, just as Frederick was doing, a clever duke, like Henry the Lion, 
could stay at home, expand his land and and wealth and military and influence, and end up becoming more powerful than their liege, who again is busy putting out fires all over the place. So even with Henry the Lion gone, Frederick is still beset by political conflict. A dozen new dukes and princes spring up hydra-like in order to challenge and contest him, ready ready to jostle for position in Henry's wake here. So... It doesn't get any better, really, for Frederick, even with the uh, even with the removal of his most powerful and most troublesome vassal, uh, and that's just within Germany. I mean, it's very clear in in the wake of his disastrous campaign, last campaign into Italy, it's it's very clear he's lost control of northern Italy. I mean, sure, it's his in name; it's coloured in as part of the Holy Roman Empire on the map, but in reality, it's the Pope who has far more authority than the Emperor in the South. So a lifetime of struggle, I think it's fair to say for poor old Frederick, hasn't really moved the needle. He did consolidate some power behind the title of Holy Roman Emperor. You remember that when he took the the, the crown as King of, of Germany, King of Italy, and then ultimately the emperor, the royal and imperial power centralized behind those crowns wasn't all that great. They had been progressively weakened over a long period of time. And he did go some way in, in, in undoing and reversing some of that. But Broadly speaking, for such a talented and determined leader, I mean, what does Frederick have to show for all the hard work that he's put in over the last few decades? Not much has changed, as I say, but this is what I want to talk about. Because the principal achievement of Frederick here is just preserving his title and his realm, holding on to what he had, not losing it altogether to the infighting and the chaos within his realm. He did his best to keep his realm together. And given the political climate of the time, I think you've got to recognize he did a bloody good job. Under a weaker or less able leader, the Holy Roman Empire might have splintered completely. But Frederick held it together with the political equivalent of spit and string. And just for good measure, in 1184, he decided he'd give it he'd give it one last go and he began his sixth and final campaign into Italy. And look, I got to say this campaign it fared better than his last one, not that that's saying much because the last one was a total disaster, but look, this time around he brought some mutinous Italian cities back into line. He aligned himself with some powerful rural Italian nobles and most notably of all here, he married his son and heir, Henry to the heir of the kingdom of Sicily, the future Queen Constance. And he did this despite the protestations of, can you guess, the new Pope, Urban III. And isn't this an interesting end point for his Italian campaigns? Because Frederick's Italian campaigns began all those years ago, as you'll remember, with a promise to the Pope for him to fight the Sicilians on the Pope's behalf. And now, three decades later, He's marrying his heir to the heir of Sicily, despite the Pope's objections. A very funny way for the Italian campaigns to end. I mean, they began by him marching against the Sicilians at the Pope's request and ended with him marrying his family into the Sicilian royal family against the Pope's wishes. But, I mean, more seriously, him crossing the Pope like this was actually a big deal. And making this match of his son and the heir to the uh, to, to the throne of Sicily may have actually very easily spilled into another major conflict between the papacy and the imperial court, but it didn't, and it didn't for a very simple reason. In 1187, Pope Urban III died, 
and he was replaced by Pope Gregory VIII, who diffused the conflict between church and state for two reasons. Firstly, Gregory was much friendlier with Frederick. The two got on much better, and Gregory wasn't as inclined to make life hard for the Holy Roman Emperor, even though he had defied the papacy with this marriage. But secondly, and rather more importantly, uh, instead of all of this infighting and conflict within the realm itself, Gregory was much more concerned with a different issue altogether. News had come from the east, from the Holy Land, where the Crusader states were in big trouble. They were facing an increased level of hostility from their Muslim neighbours. In the mid-1170s, a new sultan had begun a conquest of Syria, which he completed in 1182. And since then, this sultan had been stepping up attacks on Christian-held cities and settlements throughout the Levant. And just now, in 1187, this bloke had captured Jerusalem. He had annihilated the Christian forces there and now posed an existential threat to the remaining crusader states in the Levant. And this sultan, of course, was Saladin. And you can hear all about what he got up to, all of these events and more, in much greater detail in episode 201, Get Across It. But Pope Gregory is deeply concerned about Saladin's successes against the Crusader states and so called for a third crusade. And this refocused the political and military attention within the Holy Roman Empire and indeed throughout Christendom away from internal conflict and towards another invasion of the Levant. European kings answered the Pope's call to crusade. Frederick of Germany, Philip II of France, Richard the Lionheart of England, and to avoid another disaster like the Second Crusade, all these leaders spent an entire year or more, they spent 1188 and into 1189, planning this campaign out very, very carefully. Well over a year went into preparing for this crusade. Frederick mustered 15,000 troops. Around a quarter of them were powerful mounted knights and drew up a very very clear plan for how they would travel, how they would be fed and watered on the way. And he made deals with the Hungarians and the Turks to allow his troops through their land safely on their way towards the Levant. He also informed Saladin, with whom he had had actually quite friendly relations. Uh, Frederick and Saladin had got on quite well with each other, but uh, he, he said that formal hostilities were about to begin between their two realms. And then, in April 1189, he set off for the Holy Land with his soldiers. However, as I mentioned, he never made it. The March East had started off very well. He even managed to convince the King of Hungary to join the Crusade on the way, Uh, He got through the Byzantine-held lands without an issue, and look, while there were some scraps with the Turks further east, these went his way, and slowly but surely, his huge German army bore down on Saladin. And Saladin was very concerned. He, He knew that Frederick was on his way with this large contingent of troops, and had to send some of his own men from laying siege in Akka in order to defend the north from the incoming Germans. But, as I say, Frederick never got that far. Because on the 10th of June, 1190, while crossing a river on his way towards the Holy Land, Frederick just died. He drowned in this river, and to this day, we still don't know what the exact story is as to why. One account says that while crossing the river, Frederick was thrown off his horse, and because he was wearing heavy armour, once he fell into the water, he sank like a stone and drowned. But another story tells us that due to the heat of the day, Frederick decided to go for a swim. And look, this wouldn't have been out of character for him. He loved to have a swim. He, he loved to get in the water and have a bit of a swim around. But 
Due to the heat and the fatigue, it's thought that he may have been so exhausted that while he was swimming, he went under the water and never emerged again. He, he drowned, he succumbed, succumbed to fatigue and, and, and ultimately lost his life. But then there's another account that's a little more embarrassing for him that says that he was merely washing himself in the river. He wasn't swimming, just washing himself in, high, in waist-high water and somehow drowned from that position. So no idea how that works, but that is what one bloke said happened. But look, honestly, we don't know the truth of it. We don't know exactly why Frederick met his end in this river, but we do know that after a lifetime of campaigning against enemies, both in, internal and external, Frederick Barbarossa finally met his end at the age of 67, not at the point of a sword, but in a river. An ignominious end for one of the medieval era's most competent and able leaders, a man who kept his realm together come hell or, well, actually, no, not not high water. I mean, that was, that was the whole problem, wasn't it? Anyway, with Frederick dead, the bulk of the German forces that he was leading just gave up. They just, they just decided to call it a day and they headed home. Some of them continued on, uh, but only 5,000, around a third of them, uh, actually made it to the Levant to fight in the Third Crusade. Uh, and after arriving, they put themselves under the command of Richard of England or Philip of France. But that's another story. Because with Frederick dead, his part in the Third Crusade was, well, I mean, over and exceedingly minimal, to say the least. The Holy Roman Empire passed to his son, Henry VI, who, like his father, held the imperial crown until he died. But the death of Henry in 1197 saw a long-standing feud over the future of the empire, and this was a feud that wouldn't be resolved for two decades. It really is astounding that Frederick Barbarossa was able to hold his empire together as he did for so long, and maintained even a level of stability throughout the lands that he ruled. This was a time of great political turmoil within the Holy Roman Empire, and Frederick masterfully balanced his own political ambitions against the political realities of the time. To expand his power and influence where he could, it, it took some very judicious decision-making, because he also had to recognise the very real limitations and obstacles that stood in the way of his ambitions. And as I said, a lesser leader would have seen the realm crumble beneath them, as unrest and infighting blossomed into full-scale war in all probability, but Frederick instead used every tool at his disposal. Political diplomacy, military force, personal charm. He did all of this and more to hold his empire together and see it weather this period of history. So often we talk about the people who forged empires, who built them from the ground up. Frederick was not one of these people, but he was someone who held an empire together through thick and thin. And as a result, he's remembered as one of the great medieval leaders and one of Germany's proud historical figureheads. Although, like with most famous German leaders, his image and reputation was, of course, co-opted by the Third Reich, just like Frederick the Great's was. And this combined with the fact that Germans just don't really celebrate their own history all that much for very understandable reasons. This means that Barbarossa is a somewhat overlooked figure in medieval history, especially compared with some of his historical compatriots, for example, Richard the Lionheart, who I'm sure everyone has at least heard of. But as an emperor who determinedly, come what may, held his empire together, no matter what, Frederick fought through obstacle after obstacle to ensure the survival of the realm that he governed. And thanks to him, the Holy Roman Empire 
would go on to stand the test of time and last another 600 years. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Frederick Barbarossa. And as it was a very long one, I won't keep you here too long. We'll just do all the normal boring housekeeping stuff and then we'll be out of here. Halfasshistory.net, you can find links to all the old episodes there, in addition to links to Spotify, iTunes, where you can subscribe or indeed leave a review. Thanks to all the people who are doing exactly that. And thank you to the people supporting the show in other ways as well. Buying merch, you can find a link to the merch shop uh, at halfhourshistory.net as well. And there you can go and buy all sorts of historically themed swag. The shop was updated relatively recently. So worth a look if you want to go and have a squeeze at what's on, uh, what's on offer there. And thank you to the people who are supporting the show on Patreon as well. Uh, massively appreciate the the people who are there. Uh, and look, it's it's two way street. You know, it's not it's not all give. It's there's a little bit of take as well. You can uh, take some show notes, some uncut episodes, some behind, all, all sorts of other behind the scenes stuff. In addition to discounts at the merch shop, um, early access to episodes, all sorts of stuff going on there. Patreon exclusive merch could be yours as well at no extra cost once you sign up at one of the upper tiers. So get across that, have a look, and if you feel like supporting the show in that way, it's very much appreciated. But thank you to the people who are just out there supporting the show, emailing in with their topic ideas, with their feedback, and most importantly, telling other people about the show as well. Got to get the word out. So thank you to everyone who is helping to spread the word of Half-Ass History. It's greatly appreciated. But we'll get out of here now. We're going to uh, close out the episode, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Wheeljack Frosty Dick, which is just such such an incredible piece of uh, online real estate. Wheeljack Frosty Dick asks, at what point did Frederick Barbarossa abandon his life as the Holy Roman Emperor to become a pirate with Captain Jack Sparrow?